Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. Willkommen. I am your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Welcome, Matt. Welcome, Adrian. Guess what I can see directly across the table from me? A pile of books holding up my mic. And you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're in person together. This is fun. Uh, It's everything I ever dreamed and hoped it could be, and then some. This is the second time we've done this, I think. Like, I've been in person with a guest, you've been in person with a guest, and we've been in person with Max. But, But never the two of us recording together. Today, we are talking about Zone One. We're doing a post read for Colson Whitehead's this zombie novel. This is such novel. an interesting experience, like, because I'm like situated so that I'm like looking directly into Adrian. Yeah, we're like into his face, eyeball to eyeball, which is a lot more direct eye contact than like I typically do <laughs> via the computer because it's like a little tiny picture of Adrian so it's like you know I mean you know I can look yeah, at it or and not you usually or scroll away from it so that you can talk over me anyway too wow brutal I'm in just person a, the knives are out the knives are out the scales are active the knives are out do you think this is like if we were stragglers this is what we would be doing we just both come here and stare at each other in each other's eyes their mics between us well we've only done it a couple of times but i guess that doesn't matter i mean a straggler doesn't care how often it's done a thing it just has to be really important really important to it because there's that bit about how a straggler might go back to the site of their honeymoon right or go back to the site where they decided where they were going to go on their honeymoon because that actually has more physical valence than the honeymoon Mm. itself so I think we would. I think this is us, straggler. Let's look in each other's eyes and like, <laughs> let's let's see what the listeners well, hear. Well, there's that little hint at the end of the book about how maybe stragglers actually like might wake up sometimes. Who knows? Little hint slash one yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, this is our spoiler cast for Zone One. If you have not read the book, then you, uh, I mean, I don't know this isn't a spoilery kind of, this isn't a plot book as much but we'll be talking we, there about will spoilers be full spoilers the for this book yeah. in as much as such a thing could exist and right. there are also probably some content warnings we should say up front like this conversation and the book itself mm. if you've read the book then you know um if you haven't read the book then be warned that it includes a lot of violence right references to various uh even worse things right um, there's some references to sexual violence although never any on screen that i recall yeah um That's and right. it's it's your i would say it's like expected zombie novel movie etc levels yeah, of violence right if you are familiar at all with zombie tropes a lot of people are going to die mm. a lot of dead people are going to die again post-apocalypse lots of lots of deads lots yep. of bad things from the living yeah that's a deal and one other thing to say is probably um which i really enjoyed and is also vaguely relevant to some of the stuff that we were talking about in the pre-read episode is that the, the word zombie is never used in this book and i think for Mm-mm reasons that have to do with its freighted cultural history freighted yeah that's a bad way of putting it that's probably it's a word that has been used uh by white people in a very racist way a lot Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so instead of that word uh colson whitehead uses the word skells as in like skeleton right right Um, so we should probably try to do that i I guess so fail to do that but I, I think it's a good idea to just pick a different word for the thing. Um, it actually is very effective, I think, I thought. Did Interesting. Like yeah, I haven't, I hadn't thought about it in that context. I thought about it more in kind of the context of the Walking Dead comics where it's used as a way of maybe removing itself from being too tropey. 
Um, oh, interesting. But I, but yeah. I do, I think, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, Whitehead's um, intention in not using the word zombie was, whether it was a literary device or a anti-racist device or what it was exactly. But that's, that's interesting. an interesting way of thinking assumed. about it. Yeah, I think you're... Yeah, you might be right. I just assumed that it was a, an anti-racist thing, but it could easily be that and other stuff or neither. Or what, I don't know. Right. Yeah, no, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of the content warnings. I think this discussion is going to be relatively loose compared to maybe what we normally do because we are in person and not over the Internet. We don't There's have no a big rules. outline. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just no rules after today. the apocalypse. Just half a day. <laughs> Well, until there are rules again, which is maybe something we'll, we'll talk about. It's a timeout. It's a time, <laughs> it's a... There was a line about, you know, um, towards the very end about like, well, if we can, if we can bring back paperwork, we can bring back prejudice. <laughs> yeah, true. But then it, it's not, it's not an interregnum. It's a timeout. It's a timeout. Yeah. So um, before we get too deep into talking about the book, I wanted to do some stuff we could maybe couldn't do as much in the pre-read, which is talk about other similar novels. Um, Actually, both. do you want to do a capsule review real quick? Oh, yeah. Or five minutes or sort of yeah. like what did we like it or not? Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. Did you like it? I loved it. I was I loved it. Um, there's a bunch of things that I want to talk about more in depth. So I will kind of like really high level. But I love the prose. I thought it was really well written at a sentence level, like prose level book. Um, I liked the sort of narrative structure of it, including this way that it would like not necessarily go into flashback, but weave like present, future and past all together in like, you know, the same paragraph and the way it kind of, you know, it's not quite a stream yeah. of consciousness at a narrative stage, but it's also a few steps closer to that than the very, you know, kind of like this happened then this happened kind of more common science fictional narrative totally structure. it doesn't like bracket any of the flashbacks or memories or anything no. it just kind of goes in and out of them right so i want to talk about that whole thing more so i'll bracket i'll bracket that for later myself whoa um and then yeah it's just as far as it being a you know i've read a lot of post-apocalypse and i'm not necessarily a huge fan of the zombie genre and so I thought this was one of the better, you know, zombie, you know, and I, you know, we just talked about not using the word zombie, but in terms of like that style of yeah. novel, I think, I think it's one of the, it's the best zombie novel I've read. It's one of the better, you know, kind of like walking dead zombie, whatever you want to call it style of mm -hmm. media I've mm -hmm. ever consumed. Um, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, and it was, um, it was also a relatively, like for all, and I think we'll talk about this more too, for all it's kind of like very much literary fiction at heart. Mm -hmm. It was a very, still like a very entertaining and like I kept wanting to read more, right? It's not a plot heavy novel, but there is always this kind of like sense of movement and wanting to read more and wanting to know what comes next, even though what comes next is like more thinking about stuff, not necessarily more plot happening. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. What so about you? Yeah, my take on this book is I thought I agree with basically everything you said, but I think in addition to that, I found it to be, it had this weird emotional effect where it kind of whipsawed between being exciting mm -hmm. and like pumping you up and mm -hmm. just being incredibly depressing, mm -hmm. which I think is a very good, I mean, I think that's on purpose and I think it kind of captures what the, what Colson Whitehead was trying to capture about, you know, mm. trauma and the effect of mm -hmm. kind of constant trauma on a human yeah you know the people in the book are suffering through the apocalypse and then trying to stop the apocalypse and rebuild from it and there's this kind of 
analog to to being depressed and trying to get out of depression i mm-hmm. think that like is an undercurrent running through the whole book and yeah speaking of content warnings i think trauma yeah. ptsd pasd as they call <laughs> it here like we'll be talking about that kind of stuff a lot I that's think. such a great thing that he comes up with past pronounced past that's so good that's so great. good so good but um there's also just speaking like review wise, there's a lot of those kind of like really good little um jokes jokes observations you know kind of like it's almost it's like literary fiction style observational humor yeah that's exactly that's a great way to put it i mean it's 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 sort of like really real jokes that are both funny and dark and also kind of have the like 1990s kind of observational yeah don delilo going on right yeah so the i mean i guess my overall thing you know with this is like sometimes the book wasn't fun for me interesting um which is not to say that it wasn't good it was just there were moments that that were just kind of depressing to me. Yeah. And I think like not by accident, but right. so that was kind of something I, I struggled with reading the book. So it was sort of, and I found it interesting to compare it to Underground Railroad um, mm. in that both are about such difficult stuff and and kind of there there are these interesting comparisons in terms of the like emotional beats that they're both going through, mm-hmm. um, even though they're about different things. So I'm sure we'll get into that too. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I I wanted to. I think maybe that's a good segue into moving into talking about other similar novels. Um, because I'd actually wanted to ask you about. I've not read Underground Railroad, and I was very curious how this compared and contrasted to that novel. Since it's it won the Pulitzer, it won all these other awards. It's yeah. very kind of famous novel. So I'm curious totally. how this worked. Yeah, my take is that I think Underground Railroad is a better book. Um, in pretty much every way, which is not to say I think this is a bad book. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good book, but. Underground Railroad kind of, you know, if this if this is a book where you're sort of like, I don't know, for some reason a tennis metaphor like comes to mind. So if this is a book where he's hitting like solid shots to different parts of the court, Underground Railroad is a book where he's hitting winners to different parts of the court. Right. He's hitting ace after ace. Yeah. Kind of thing. I mean, it's it's just it's just so good. Um, interesting. The interest, the most interesting thing about that comparison to me is how weirdly similar the books are. I mean, Underground Railroad is a book about um, slaves in America. Right. And it's about escaping slavery. And there's a way in which the process of escaping slavery is a little bit analogous to the process of like trying to fight back the apocalypse in this book. Yeah. Where, you know, you suffer reversals and it's not this like clean, you know, monotonic upward march. Right. Um, it's, it's messy and it's sort of like always fundamentally in danger of failing utterly. Right. And that's like a really important true thing about dealing with incredible difficulty and incredible trauma and 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 terrible mm-hmm. things in life and and I, I i don't know of other books that kind of capture that as effectively i mean it's he just does a really good job of putting you in that emotional roller coaster right where it's like you're you're going from optimism to pessimism so often you know mm-hmm. and it's such a true thing you know if, if any, any listener has ever been through depression you know it really is like that oh yeah it can be a whiplash what about, uh, like, I was almost, you know, we talked about the humor of the novel a little bit, and I was almost surprised by how funny and, like, how much humor there was. Like, is that also present in Underground Railroad? Not in the same way. I think Colson Whitehead's really smart and sort of witty, and he has a way of kind of um, making these very, like, crackling, piercing observations about things. And so mm-hmm. he still does that, but he doesn't do it 
There's something about Zone One which is almost like a Seinfeld episode thing. Yeah, a hundred. It's doing that, and like Underground Railroad is not is not doing that same thing. It's not. It's not trying to be like kind of witty in that same way. You know, Zone One is always interested in like casually as an aside making these. And, and the the point of it, I think, I take it to be. I take the point of this to be this sort of highlighting this crazy juxtaposition between apocalypse and like modern life Mm. it's like highlighting the absurdities of modern life by like setting a book in the apocalypse where people are constantly remembering sitcoms (laughs) you know and right like going out to eat (laughs) you know i mean i think the first line of the book is like he always wanted to live in new york yeah right right. (laughs) which is a thing one doesn't associate with um you know fighting the undead (laughs) (laughs) right but of course like someone who grew up in a world where you don't fight the undead and you might want to move to new york York, and who is then transplanted into a world where the only thing that matters is fighting the undead is right if they're still gonna well and is doing that in new york like that's going to be this weird sort of like juxtaposition like i always wanted to do this and i'm here we'll talk this is another whole thing i have written down new york thing yeah um so uh just in terms of other books you know you mentioned Seinfeld I was kind of thinking kind of a similar along those lines of Don DeLillo yeah totally um like it's a very like when I I keep saying literary fiction and what I really mean is sort of the like you know Don DeLillo style postmodern New York writer kind of literary fiction yeah or David Foster Wallace to some extent yeah I mean like you know given that David Foster Wallace was directly writing as like DeLillo was one of his mentors yes yeah <laughs> yeah no I mean I think um, but honestly I I think this holds to me more in common with DeLillo's White Noise or and I haven't I haven't actually Cosmopolis. read Cosmopolis um yeah. but I've seen the movie and the the that you know the thing going on in those narratives and those stories like feels very much like the same kind of thing i kept thinking of the movie cosmopolis while while reading this mm. novel i thought about white noise a lot i didn't really yeah. think i i have read that book and it, and i i thought it was okay but i thought white noise was white noise is my like go-to thing for a lot of these metaphors because it's mm-hmm. the perfect combination it's so good i like that book so much it's very good it's such a good combination between like humor and like a very real exploration of dark emotions. Right. And depression, yeah, like yeah. humor and depression. Yeah. Taking yeah. pictures of taking pictures. Because it's so funny. Right. Like, well, and it's that same kind of observational yeah. humor, right? Where it's, it's not just, it's observational wit that like sometimes is humorous, sometimes is metaphorical, sometimes is depressing, but there is this very clear. And I think that like when you said uh, episode of Seinfeld, I think the, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's humor is like one avenue of doing that. Yeah, yeah. And it's more, to me, it's more Seinfeld than Larry David, which is the whole thing. But but I also think it's interesting to think about how there's different eras of this sort of observational humor. And the Don Delilo white noise thing is, it's closer to Animal House in a weird way than it is to Seinfeld, (laughs) which is like a whole thing. But um, the humor, I think, is is an important aspect of this. You know, I mean, I laughed out loud a lot reading mm-hmm. this book, even though I mean, we were, it also you were just like me. finishing it while I was yeah. sitting next to you and you were laughing and like wanting to be like, Adrian, read this part. Uh, yeah. Even though you like just read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just finished 12 hours ago. So I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you know, it was, it's, it's really, it's, it's like both funny and depressing, which mm-hmm. is, which is an interesting combination. And I think it's also kind of, there's a, a certain kind of cultural criticism that the novel is, is is itself engaged in in the pursuit of some of these witticisms so right. it's like the thing it's trying to be funny about is modern society and all of it the weird hypocrisies that go into building 
the lives of especially modern society for upper middle class people who live in cities mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I mean, there are around or near suburban etc yeah this is something i wanted to to ask you about as somebody who's like a transplant to a big city but who like didn't always live right in that world like right. you know did, did it just sort of ring true to you i mean so the main character you know mark spitz is a, like a long island suburb boy right you know and he like all of his references are to things that you know you have to have lived at least a life of a certain socioeconomic level mm-hmm. in order to to like have that be your go-to reference for that thing right um so it's it's very much like and that's another sense in which it's like a seinfeld thing where it's the the critical observations it wants to make about society are about a certain kind of society very much so yeah i you know it's interesting because i i, I would almost like pose that like you maybe have a more like growing up in like la suburbs have a more similar kind of upbringing to his than i did given you know oh, i know like, i didn't mean to suggest you your upbringing was so similar to his i i wouldn't meant to suggest like did it seem weird to you like was it was it like weird that the book was sort of focused like at a particular kind of experience? No, I mean, I, one, as someone who does live in New York City now, I mean, I get all these references and I even yeah. like the funny thing about Seinfeld is like I watched Seinfeld growing up. That was and one I of the didn't. few sitcoms yeah. <laughs> I, I ever watched growing up. So there's a weird way in which like. Yeah. You know, I think that maybe incepted some of the New York City lifestyle. Right. And this is, of course, a, this is, of course, a, a and I still it's also yeah. it's like one. It's my favorite rewatch. That's you so know, funny. from the 90s. Yeah, because uh, by far, because I never watched Seinfeld. Right. I didn't watch it growing up and I don't watch it now and I don't really want to. <laughs> Have you ever seen much? I've seen like a couple episodes. Okay. I think there, I've seen like the soup Nazi one. It's you know? this. The funny thing about Seinfeld is, in my opinion, a lot of the most famous episodes are not necessarily the best ones, but that might become as like being a New Yorker now. Like my favorite mm. ones are the ones that are just sort of like about nothing but living in New York. Yeah. The you one know, that, that I don't remember. have a big thing about them. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, the the one that I remember and that I actually enjoyed watching was the one where like Kramer plays Risk on the subway or something. <laughs> right, that's, that's, like, legitimately that's hilarious. the shit that I love. Right, yeah. or I mean, one of my favorites, which is I think maybe a slightly more famous one, but is um the one where the whole episode just takes with them waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant at a new popular restaurant. I mean, that is pretty funny. Like the whole premise. episode is just that, and it, yeah. it's perfect. It's per- because it's essentially it's like 24 hours is like done in real time. I mean, it's kind of that where it's done in real yeah. time is they have to like wait 30 minutes for a table. Yeah, it's perfect. It's great. Yeah. And it just, it definitely feels like that kind of thing. You're like, wait, didn't, didn't that guy come after us? Like, why did they get a table first? <laughs> and what, of course, why like did that happened. And it's actually, that's even more perfect because like a commercial break is exactly the amount of time you zone out. And like <laughs> forget where you are. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> I can't believe we're spending this episode talking about Seinfeld. It's really weird, but it actually makes a lot of sense. It does. It's the New York thing. Cause it's very much, I think it's very much a, uh, you know, I, I think I said this, but it's it, to me very much like, Half of the novel is that it's very much a New York novel. It's a New York literary fiction novel like Delilo or, you know, I, I don't know, maybe some more modern ones come to ben mind. Learner. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I said it that way, listeners, because Adrian loves Ben Lerner. I really love Ben Lerner. I like his poetry a lot. I like his novels a lot. I recognize the ways in which that is self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> I like but Ben Lerner. Sometimes too. I'm going to be self indulgent. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I like him too. I think, uh, yeah, I think like I thought about 1004, for example. Yeah, oh, 100%, 100%. And I, I imagine you probably did too. 
Well, I know you love that book. Especially that one because that book is in so even though it's modern literary fiction, it's also in some ways the other half of this book, which is post-apocalyptic, right? Like with yep. that being the like the bookends of 10, 1004 are Irene and Sandy, the kind of two mm-hmm. years between these like two major hurricanes that New York City had. And especially Sandy did a lot of damage to New York City and the surrounding areas, and it felt post-apocalyptic. Like I've I think I've said this, but I've I volunteered in the Rockways for a while, like helping people clean up. The water had flooded into people's second sto- stories of their homes. Like the, the 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 entire like neighborhoods were trashed. When I was driving around over a week later, there were boats in the streets. It was an intensely apocalyptic scene. Um, and you know the power on all of Manhattan went out. And I, I, I was living in Queens at the time, like I do now. And so I couldn't even get to Manhattan. The bridges mm-hmm. were shut down. There were several days where I could not get off Long Island because, well, you know, Queens is geographically on Long Island. Um, and, you know, by the time I did, the power was back essentially. But like I had friends living in Manhattan who were like, oh, yeah, they just the power was out. People would like wander the streets like, you know, food vendors would like pull their generators out and just start running them and be like, you know, offer charging stations for people's phones. Like it was this big, like post-apocalyptic community that developed overnight. Yeah. It's interesting because that's, you know, there's so many different kinds of communities that can, like, there's so many different sort of, uh, emotional landscapes that one could traverse Mm. if the world changes dramatically around one. And like, it sounds like, you know, you're talking about the American Phoenix, Right. You're talking that, that's a Feeny community. Like, <laughs> that is a Feeny community. Those are all those are all situations where everybody like retains this fundamental optimism. Yeah. And one thing I kept thinking about in this book is I kept trying to think about other stories that I've read where there was where where the way that it ends is so ambivalent about that kind of optimism. Because mm. even stories where things end badly may still want to portray that kind of optimism in a positive way but this is a book where like optimism itself is kind of at issue constantly can i offer one yeah this was going to be the other book that i wanted to talk about in relation to like similar books and this is the post-apocalyptic similarity uh wittgenstein's mistress by david markson yeah yeah it's a like i want to say late 60s early 70s something like that kind of experimental also like kind of around the same postmodern era as delilo um and it is a book about written as the diary of the last woman on earth like Mm -hmm. 10 years into being the last woman on earth and Mm -hmm. all she's been doing is driving around and she's gone kind of Mm -hmm. you know I mean, the, the the Wittgenstein's like call out is there because like she has no one else to practice language games with. And so mm. she has kind of like, yeah, it has a hard time relating to herself as an individual, much less other people because there aren't other people. And um, it's also it's very so it has some of that same the the feeling of like Mark Spitz wandering the countryside alone very much has this kind of like tone and and also the way in which like past, present and future all sort of get like mushed together into just like whatever he's thinking about right now is like the present of the narrator, what the narrator is narrating. And sometimes that's from long ago. Sometimes it's thinking about the future. Sometimes that's what he's actually like experiencing in the moment. Uh, That kind of stream of consciousness thing happens a lot because this woman like doesn't have other people to relate to and talk to. And so she's just sort of like writing what she's writing. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a really cool, it's actually a much more accessible novel than I'm making it sound. Although it also is a very, like referential both self-referential and like literary referential novel it's really cool it's one of my like favorite books um but this book really reminded me of that in certain ways and i think that 
yeah, that, that, that book has like the ambivalence towards optimism at mm, the end. Yeah. Like there's something similar there too, the, without the, getting too much so into the, it. That, that sounds really cool. And I want to, I want to, I've heard, I've heard of that book and I, I, I think maybe I'll move it up in the queue. Mm-hmm. Um, the other book that it makes me think of is one that we have talked about, which is uh, Anna Kavan's Ice. Yeah. Which is another book that, that is literally um, next in my queue. So yeah, so yeah, that was written in the fifties, and and it's it's very much about depression and like the psychological difficulty of escape. And like, I think you know, in my head, um, being truly ambivalent about optimism itself is something that is kind of inextricably linked to depression because it has been in my life. I don't know if that's true of everyone, but you know, yeah. from what I from conversations I've had about depression with people, that is something. It's a common feature of it. So. Mm. I think of a story about depression as being a story about uh, this kind of, um, you know, fight over whether to be optimistic and how how optimism even works and like what mm-hmm. it, what it didn't even makes sense to think about. And I, I think about this book as being that kind of book too. So it's kind of funny because, you know, it's this is the sense in which it's not actually like it escapes the trap of only being a kind of Seinfeldian. T- like series of takes about like modern society and the weird hypocrisies of it by also being about depression. Yeah. And, you know, it does a really good job of that, I think, but also kind of weirdly never talks about, like ice is, is different. And we'll, we'll talk more about ice later, right. but right. Uh, in another, in another episode, but, but not every book that's about depression kind of is so effectively about depression while not depicting a sort of traditionally depressed character. Cause right. you know, Mark Spitz is very active. He does stuff. He kind of is on the move a lot. It's mm-hmm. not like he's like holed up waiting to die, which he could be. You could imagine that he, the whole I mean, book other was characters about, do. Yeah, totally. You could imagine a character in his position and other characters are just, you know, wanting to commit suicide eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mark Spitz isn't that. And, and so that's the sense in which it's, it's about the struggle and the struggle is real. You know, and that's maybe the fundamental like secret kernel of not optimism, but like refusal to give up mm-hmm. that kind of really drives the narrative beneath everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are several scenes, um, you know, the one in which he gets his nickname and then the very final scene where that refusal to give up really like comes to the forefront and you realize sort of like. Yeah, maybe the ways in which it both like, eh, maybe not makes him special, but like specifically makes him who who he is. There's a quote that I I read I'll to you, and I will I will pull up now and read to the audience, dear listeners. <laughs> um, oops, this will take me a second. I will edit this out to make it sound like it didn't. <laughs> maybe maybe I won't. I might not edit this episode at all. Y'all have to listen and find out. <sighs> He was a mediocre man. He had led a mediocre life exceptional only in the magnitude of its unexceptionality. Now the world was mediocre, rendering him perfect. He asked himself, how can I die? I was always like this. Now I am more me. He had the ammo. He took them all down. (laughs) So that's like a, you know, like the, the beat drops and like, the bullets fly and it's an awesome like sweet pump you up scene and the very end of the book is kind of like that too for me at least yeah um, yeah where he like decides to swim the very very end Mm -hmm. uh he's like gonna swim it instead of trying to make it to the to the ferry terminal um and 
I think it's interesting because like no, but he's he's gonna swim it through the ocean of the debt, right? Like it's not he's not swimming literally. He's swimming by like going out and like being out amongst the no, dead. no, no. I mean, I that that's true, but also I think he was talking specifically about like instead of going to the terminal, he could try to swim for the mainland, mm-hmm. get off Manhattan, mm-hmm. go it alone again. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he yeah. There's also the metaphor, but so like I think it's 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 so it's so interesting because the it's such a it's such a complicated mix of things you know but like one layer of this is one layer of this like badass moment that mark spitz has mm-hmm. is this is this comment about mediocrity which i found to be like that's kind of the heart of the depression analog for me yeah mark spitz's self-image is like completely about how he's this mediocre guy who just gets bees on everything but like he obviously had like a pretty well-off upbringing and like went to college and like is a survivor who's like making it where so many other people are failing and like getting a B isn't even that bad. So my reaction to hearing him talk about himself in the book is, is the same as the reaction I have sometimes when I'm talking to a friend of mine who happens to be <laughs> depressed, which is like, Jesus, like you it's not like that bad. You're actually okay. Right. Now. <laughs> no, no, but like, no, I know I'm saying this is like what my therapist sounds like to me when he's talking to me when I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that self-conception versus the reality and how hard that can be to like pull apart. Exactly. So that's why to me, the, the sort of sense of Mark Spitz talking about himself as a feeling that he himself is mediocre is, is so central to the, the, this as a depression novel mm. because like that's exactly the wrong thing that he thinks about that's at the heart of his depression mm. you know mm-hmm. and it's exactly when he kind of <laughs> escapes thinking about that that he's like at his most badass and it's the most uplifting and and sort of propulsive um like at the very end he the worst thing theoretically happened right um and everything has failed again making which is even worse than when it failed the first time mm-hmm. because it was like People were feeling like maybe we could finally get out of this, and the, the you know, right. But it's but, even worse for everyone but him. <laughs> but actually, you know, he he's smart and he's capable, and he like isn't smart and capable by not caring about people. He just like is smart and capable. Period. Mm-hmm. And so he comes up with a plan and like executes his plan and like isn't distracted by feeling bad and just kind of. And it's like, of course you know he's fucked up he's got his issues it's just not like he's like somehow magically like waved away all of his issues but he's not mediocre you i don't think you can i don't think you can look at this guy and say what a mediocre guy no come on what's also interesting is the idea that the world post-apocalypse is like the most mediocre world i don't think that's true either right exactly i mean i think to me that's one of the things that tips me off that you know, I want to talk a little bit here, like bring in a little bit this idea of like an unreliable narrator, which I think maybe you could argue that this novel has. But the way that I sort of look at it is that the novel's narrator is slightly different from Mark Spitz. It's not exactly like Mark Spitz's like head stream of consciousness that you're mm-hmm. hearing. But I do feel that like it is unreliable in the way that Mark Spitz is, or, or it is it is one hundred percent reliable at telling you the way that Mark Spitz sees the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like in that sense, it's one hundred percent reliable. Yeah. It's just that like he is unreliable. Um, 
and I, I really like that because in terms of, you know, being a, an unreliable narrator, like, like I, I at times can have kind of issues with those sorts of novels because it feels like a little bit like the author lying to you than being like, ha ha, you believed me. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. You like, mean I, issues you know, with unreliable narrator novels. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and this didn't have those issues that I sometimes have. It didn't feel like it was purposefully tricking me and then like pointing and laughing at me for getting tricked. Oh, not at all. <laughs> yeah. I don't even, I don't even think of it in the framework of unreliable. I think it's right. like, yeah, to me, it's like the, the way I thought about it is exactly it's an it's in some sense a novel about depression. Mark Spitz is depressed. This is him being depressed. Right. And it's his like he's unreliable because he's depressed. Like yeah. part of depression is sort of like not being able to reliably understand what's, you know, yourself <laughs> in your place in the world and, you know, how the ways in which you might be good. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I really, uh, you know, I, it's funny. I hadn't thought of it necessarily specifically as like a extended metaphor for depression, but it works so well as that. And I think that extended metaphor is some of what I related to in it and what I appreciated about the novel and enjoyed so much about it. This idea of like, you know, you know, there's also, there's this element too of, you know, on the one hand, it is sort of like very raw, raw, like I'm going to, I'm going to get them all kind of action heroy. But the other thing about, but the very end and this this part from the middle where he gets his nickname that I'm talking about is in both cases, he is with other people and decides to instead of staying with them, go it alone and like be kind of the action hero by going it alone. Mm. And that to me also feels like this kind of element of depression yeah. of like, yeah. you know what, I'm better off without other people. Yeah. They are better off without me. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, I can just get through this on my own and being in some way sort yeah. of like proud of being able to do it on your own. And I specifically kind of, you're talking about this, wanted to talk about Mim a little bit. Oh yeah. I was just gonna bring that up. Okay, yeah, good. It. Because this to me was this really fascinating part where Mim is sort of like, you know, this woman he meets in a toy store and they live together for a little while and they seem to, you know, you know, have a pretty good thing going insofar as like it's the end of the world. <laughs> Mark Spitz refers to it as his most successful relationship ever. <laughs> right, right. Which is so yeah, at some telling. points it's like the only woman I've ever loved or something like that. And um, but like there's something, you know, so there's that part, but there's also this element of the way that it's written about, which is this inevitability to the fact that she will eventually leave. And like, he doesn't know if she left, left, if she got caught by zombies, like or the scales, whatever, like he has no idea what happens to her, but his reaction is sort of this, like, well, that was always destined to happen. Like I was mm. never destined to like actually have this. And the way that he, like the way in which that section is written um, and the, and the way that a lot of people in this novel tell their stories is they will tell stories about, you know, cause other people also tell stories in this novel about their first night or other encounters. And we get a lot of stories from Mark Spitz's past. And there's this thing that actually gets called out by the novel, which is that oftentimes people when telling these stories, um, characters like important characters will just at some point disappear and you'll never hear from them again yeah. and the thing is says like you know not to ask because there's only one reason that can happen yeah right I and like that is that. such this like oh and that feels very like there's something about that that feels very much like this throes of being depressed I me mean, like oh well this person i'm not seeing or talking to anymore because and we all know why we you know that was destined to happen right 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 but so the, the the I couldn't agree more. I was thinking about this a lot when I read the the Mim parts, um, especially because like the way that Mim is introduced to the book is not like in this all at once bracketed, mm -hmm. you know, flashback, but rather like sprinkled throughout. Because he obviously is like 
thinking about her a lot, but like kind of doesn't really want to think about her too much because it'll hurt or something. Mm. The other thing that I think about when I think about the Mim part is when he's talk- when he's telling the sort of main part of the Mim story, he um he thinks about his previous relationships and the way that they all ended with him kind of being unable to commit. <laughs> and it was like it was this very brutal portrait of a guy who has a lot of difficulty committing to other people and feeling safe enough to do that. And mm-hmm. it was really, I mean, I think it was an important piece. It's it's such a small part of the book in terms of like the amount of words that is spent describing this, but like it's such an important piece of who Mark Spitz is. Right. And it, it fits so well with all the other instances where, like you said, he kind of actualizes himself by leaving or he thinks that he's actualizing himself by leaving other people behind mm-hmm. and not going with the group. Mm-hmm. And it's made complicated here. I mean, as it often is um, by, you know, the fact that like, okay, well for all that we're talking about, this is like a metaphor for depression in the book. Like also it is the end of the world. Like there are actually skeletons wandering around right. trying to eat you and people are unreliable. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, well, like sometimes like, yeah, actually leaving these people behind is the correct thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it arguably is what has enabled him to survive this whole time. And that's mm-hmm. another way in which the book is sort of really, really interesting. Like it, it's not, you know, it's not only a depression analog. And mm-hmm. and I think even if it is, it's like more complicated than a very straightforward one where like, because that's the thing about taking. So, OK, here I'll say there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Right, so yeah, one yeah. thing, I don't know what your view is on this. I've heard people say a lot and I've had this experience myself um, that when a person is depressed, it's there's a sort of. There's a, a a very thick and, you know, maybe impenetrable or almost impenetrable sort of barrier of feeling between depression and non-depression when you're depressed it's impossible to imagine not being depressed and when you're not depressed it's impossible to imagine being depressed even if you have been um there's this very difficult there's a great difficulty in bridging this this gap between these two states even for people who've been on both sides of it right and there's an interesting thing that i thought about you know reading the book where there's like there's the people who are fiendies kind of and the people who aren't the people who kind of like buy into Buffalo and the people who don't, the the there's this process of bridging that gap or trying to and then mm-hmm. deciding not to or or like maybe some people believe the gap exists, maybe some people don't believe it exists, which I think is a really interesting thing to think about. And then the, part of that discussion of, of this gap and bridging it is the discussion of to what extent is like a person on one side of it more right than a person on the other side. Like right. who has a better grasp of reality? The right. person who who's depressed or the person who's not depressed, you know? And, and like, you could imagine that, you know, multiple things being true in different situations, like mm-hmm. in a true end of the world situation is depression more correct somehow. Um, yeah. So the way, deep, you know, dark, real dark, the way <laughs> I think I tend to think about this is maybe slightly, slightly different lens or angle on it. Um, yeah. which is, you know, depression as a whole set aside, but like, what are the ways in which like my depressed behaviors are survival mechanisms in some way or another? And like, to me, a lot of that comes down to, you know, and, and my depression is really tied up with, with anxiety and social anxiety in Mm -hmm. particular. Um, and so like one of the ways in which like this often plays itself out is this question of like, you know, Oh, in what ways were like at times, maybe some of these behaviors, 
if not helpful, like, like to your point of like, well, maybe he does survive because he goes away on his own. Like, you know, to what degree was that maybe true at some point? And like, is that still true now? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a question Mm -hmm. that I'll often try to ask myself to, you know, especially when I get to the point where I can kind of see from the outside, whatever behaviors I'm displaying Mm -hmm. be like, okay, well, you know, at very least I can ask like, is this appropriate now or not? And the part, the hard part of depression is like, okay, you can do that with anxiety. And the hard part with depression in particular is like, oftentimes the answer is like, I don't know. I don't care. None of it matters anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and this is now getting into another complicated aspect of it, which is like, so, you know, Mark Spitz is messed up for Mm -hmm. sure, but he's also active, like we were saying. And, you know, I don't know how depressed we can really think of him as being or how much that is the right lens to think about his behavior because ultimately whatever his issues are he's taking action all the time he's he never gives up actually he's never actually like lying wrapped in the blanket waiting for the end you know well and i think that is some of the you know the reason I think the book pulls an analog with PTSD as opposed to like, like in the text, um, because I think that is more common. I, 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 you know, just really know myself in, in terms of this. I don't, I don't want to like speak as, you know, some, some sort of like mental health expert in any way, just to, just to clear that for everyone. But But this will be in the DGSM (laughs) six. But like my understanding is that that kind of like active depression is a very common kind of like PTSD side effect you know, symptom, whatever, where like that kind of combination of both being very depressed, but the way that you deal with it is through this like very active, like, well, I got to keep doing, I had to keep protecting myself from whatever it was that I was, you know, in danger of. Um, and that, gen- that, that jives that, with my experience. Yeah. Th- and that definitely makes sense given, you know, one of the last emotional beats that Mark Spitz has like with other humans is when he's like, happy that everything's going to shit he like smiles right and uh what's her name macy is like why are you smiling <laughs> oh i'm so glad you brought her up because i i like it, that was the thing i wanted to bring up it, you know this idea of like the the split between like depression and non-depression and like mm-hmm. being impossible to like really fully understand that mm-hmm. like she seems that that right like she is so 100 percent right. feeny like american phoenix project that like it, depression is impossible for her to fully understand exactly and and but at the same time it's not like she doesn't think things are fucked up like she knows too much about how things are fucked like we don't even have enough food for the winter like (laughs) this is just pr like (laughs) (laughs) i love that i love that because like of course pr for who (laughs) (laughs) right 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 um the triplets um (laughs) the triplets are so good that's such a good detail such a good detail oh god this also, book is full of good details i loved caitlin's character i loved her she was great she was so i good. also i loved gary's character just as like we, this guy that i gary's could character. could like you know not relate to but like like he's a guy i've known of course you know? and i i one of the, my favorite details about gary's character is how he is not familiar with the like racist stereotype <laughs> of black people that like mark spitz brings up at the end about swimming right. and that the was way so funny in which he's not where it's like he just Actually, I loved that conversation, too, because it gets to like how ridiculous racist stereotypes are when like Mark Spitz is trying to describe the stereotype to him. And he's like, yeah, but like you've learned to swim, though, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, how could you not? Yeah, but that's not the I can tread water perfectly. (laughs) He's like, I can't. This is not the point. And I don't even know how to describe this to you. But also, like, how do you of all people not know this? I know there's a line where Mark Spitz is thinking to himself that he's like shocked that like Gary did wasn't familiar with this stereotype right. like of all people gary should, <laughs> right. should fucking be racist in this way 
but that too, like that whole thing somehow felt very authentic to me of like this, you know, this kind of like shit heel, like shit kicker of a guy who, yeah, also is kind of like naive in certain ways. Of course. His whole, oh my God, the way he was like holding this picture of like, of course, oh, (laughs) you just want to like give him a hug. And like the detail of him, like, learning spanish the whole way through. but it's beautiful i mean it's beautiful because it's like it's it's the exact same feeny nonsense that is more easily recognizable in caitlin mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and that mark spitz resists and in resisting perhaps is able to survive right it's it's interesting well it's unclear if caitlin i mean like one gets the sense it, yeah. that she makes it too she that like it, yeah. i feel like caitlin is this type that i the way in which i recognize hers as someone who like maybe can outwardly like play act the Feeney bullshit more easily than Mark Spitz can, but it doesn't mean that she necessarily believes it anymore. Right. Yeah. There's a certain kind of like, I associate her with some people I know who. Yeah. It seems like a very Yaley trope in some ways. <laughs> cut it, cut it, cut that shit. Um, I associate her with, uh, I associate Caitlin with um, this certain kind of person who is, you know, the, the, there's like this, fundamental kind of down-to-earth competence about everything that they do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're just like very straightforward Mm -hmm. it's not like they can't conceive of more abstract things but they're just like like they're not distracted by abstraction that is irrelevant right and they're just like as a result so straightforwardly competent about so many things because that's like they just like focus on like what's important important and right. like a they're very direct way thinker yeah but like a very effective concrete thinker and and it's just it's a it's a type of like i'm so not that i always have admired that in right. people like deeply it's funny for all the pr talk she actually caitlin reminds me a lot of like the people i've known who work in pr and pr project management in particular <laughs> like they are some of the most deeply competent like no bullshit people working in the most bullshit industry yeah right and it's this really interesting kind of like they can buy the pr bullshit 100 percent while also buying it zero percent and somehow those two I, things I don't think of Caitlin that way time. but i recognize that type, I, is, i'm thinking of a yeah. few specific people who i've like worked with yeah. who've done pr work with me in the project management area and like they're they're really competent in these particular ways prpm PMPR. Right, right. You know, event planners. Oh, like yeah. PR well, event planners. That's a yeah, event planning is is deeply profoundly this this thing where uh-huh. it's just like either the object will be on site at the time or it won't. Right. Right. Oh man. But also like yeah. you have to deeply worry about how, yeah. you know, like company redacted is going to feel about all of the objects that are there. Like you have to have like, oh, yeah. you know, both be really good at buying into the company's bullshit oh, while yeah. also like incredibly concrete about everything. Yeah. Lots of stories about this that we're definitely not telling on air. A hundred percent. Not using any names. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I think you know to to get to get to back up just a just yeah, a little sorry. bit like one of the reasons why all these other characters are cool and like it, it the, one of the things that's going on here is I think you know it's depicting very well how very different personality types will react to trauma mm-hmm. in different ways. Mm-hmm. I, I I really enjoyed that. I think you know it would have been easy for the book to just focus a lot on mark spitz and like not give us a lot of other things because it's very internal to him Mm -hmm. a lot of the Mm -hmm. things going on are just deeply internal to mark spitz things um which isn't which is good it's done very very well but this is also a good segue to for me to bring up um another book that i thought about a lot while reading this book which is station 11 
which we mentioned um, on the last uh, episode on the on the pre-read. Station Eleven, I think, I struggled a lot because it's it's they're both books about the apocalypse and people trying to rebuild after the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, Station Eleven is set in uh, kind of the Great Lakes region, and okay. um, but it's you know North America. It's like people. The apocalypse is supposed to have happened around the same time culturally. You know, like the right it's early aughts or something. You know? Oh, I see. Oh, I see what you're saying. Never mind. Yeah. Um, so it's it's you know the setting is like not that far off. Um, but uh, the way the story progresses is like very different. Mm-hmm. Um, the emotional beats are very different, and the particular kind of lit fic novel that it is is like pretty different. I think right. like if this is a book that's about depression. That's a book that's about community and it's about it, it it's almost like I don't know, have you ever read Colin McCann novels like uh no. like the Great World Spin or uh um uh it's about Oh wait, uh, is he the is he the Pillars of Earth guy? No. No, okay. Yeah, no, no, no then I haven't. Um what's that guy's name? Uh I don't know. Anyway, um uh the um you know it's it's about it's about um relationships uh very directly and it's about in particular sort of community relationships like not just like a, a like partner partner relationship right, or like a right. parent child but like a community type of relationship mm-hmm. um station 11 you know features this sort of troop of people and their relationships and and then it features like various other people and it's all about like people kind of dealing with what's going on but like it really doesn't emphasize trauma at all in a very interesting way it's just sort of not about that Mm -hmm. um some people do bad things and and and, you know it's not like everything's great or whatever certainly very difficult but it doesn't it's not about trauma and so they're both lit they're both interested in kind of exploring uh exploring like sort of everyday experiences with like as many literary tools as we feel like we can reasonably bring to bear on this problem but they're just like focused in such different ways. It was it's they're a super interesting uh pair of books to read. If you're yeah. interested in you know, uh Litfic North America Apocalypse, those are like two really it's a really cool pairing. Mm-hmm. And the the but the interesting thing, like the 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 characters in Station Eleven are like it's like a whole book of Caitlin's and um oh. and Gary's maybe uh-huh. with no Mark Spitzes. Uh-huh. It's so interesting to that's think really about it in that way. It's right. like it's like yeah, that's a choice. I mean, it would it's a it's a good book. Like I liked it. Um, right. But you know, it's like such an interesting thing to think about what you gain and what you lose and what what's different when you make those sorts of choices. Yeah, it it is interesting. You know, I think this is something I've been vaguely kind of muddled thinking about, but wanted to like bring up and maybe even ask you like, you know, a lot of the books I brought up and I, I recognize this when I was writing them down are written by men. When I think of like other books like this, I, th- I you know, I think of the other New York books, other post-apocalyptic books, other postmodern books, literary fiction books, like the ones I think of are really like male mm-hmm. authors mostly. Um, and when I think about other like women written post-apocalyptic or kind of similar books in some ways like i do put them almost in a different category and one and they're often about more like community as a whole in this way um and you know i was thinking of eight on the pookies california while reading this mm-hmm. and the ways like i, I still kept com- that, yeah. comparing and contrasting it yeah, you and recommended I think, that to me 
Probably. I really like it. I mean, I mean, I, I love a lot of these different kinds of novels. Um, and I think that one's great. And I was trying to think about like, how does this novel, like, you know, given that that is also like a literary author writing this kind of post-apocalyptic narrative that is, but it's much more about like a husband and wife duo and their relationship and the way that mm. the secrets in their relationship, like affect that relationship. And then their relationship to a much larger community and the people in that community and like, kind of them as a unit and their relationship that mm. unit's relationship is both a, like individually each of their relationship to the different individuals in that community and it, it's you know there's something is so much about like ba- so much of that book is about the relationships and i feel like that's often like i i think some of the other novels like post-apocalyptic novels by women I've read, I kind of also often associate with, it's often about like relationships in particular are the kind of like atomic unit in some ways. Whereas I think of a lot of the male written ones I've read, it's like the individuals, the atomic unit. And you have a little bit of this, you know, like at the end where Mark Spitz like goes out to be an individual on his own, you know, and this sort of like almost like kind of a very American, like Western almost trope of like, you know, the great man going out to survive on his own. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like this isn't a fully fledged thought, but uh, like, yeah, I, 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 well, I think ice is, is like this too. Yeah. So Anna Kavan's ice is, is, is like this kind of book also. It's very individual. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, there's plenty, I think there are definitely are both kinds of, 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 of books. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'm not saying that it's all one or all the other. I just wonder, like, there seems to be something kind of like, you know, and there's different ways of masculine it about well, this. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a particular kind of um, there's a particular kind of like uh, uh, I don't know psychic deficiency that like many men have. I think mm-hmm. um, where they uh, they model their lives in this like overly indi- individualistic way, and thus kind of like fail to notice a lot of like the parts of themselves that are constitutive relationships and kind of miss out in, in in that way i mean like i think about a movie okay so this reminds me of movies too but like, oh yeah a lot of westerns have this so like i was just thinking about high plains drifter which is an old clint eastwood movie that's like insanely violent and it's kind of like a, a riff on classic like sheriff rides into ha- it's like a riff on on like shane or or something like that yeah. where like sheriff rides into town and like saves everyone and then rides off mm-hmm. sheriff rides into town isn't really a sheriff is just like a i mean like a very good gunslinger and then she like ends up like killing everyone for like different reasons and like basically everyone ends up dead mm. and it's, so it's this sort of like violent parody not non-funny parody of of a, of a classic western trope and I, and I think about that as a good encapsulation of i think what's like some of what's wrong with the this particular kind of psychic deficiency i mean this is this is one of the things that i think is good about zone one is that it doesn't think mark spitz isn't dumb enough to think that he's okay right you know mentally right. like he realizes he's got past mm-hmm. he's got his past everyone has just past. like everyone has their yeah. past you know and um his past has its particular manifestations just like everyone else's does mm-hmm. um you know so his it, you know in some sense his 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 going off alone all the time it's like when he talks about his ex-girlfriends there was always that moment when he like couldn't see them as human anymore, which is a wonderful way of putting it. And I think that's kind of how, you know, this, 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 um, this kind of issue works a lot of the time. It's like, it's difficult for somebody to, um, like keep up the model 
of their own life that like is able to recognize that is is able to distinguish between like the relationships and uh themselves or something like right you know like you know i mean i i think it's i think it's pretty indisputable that like part of what makes up a person part of what literally constitutes a person is the relationships they have with other people and if you kind of can't interact with that part of yourself then Mm -hmm. you're not gonna be a a complete person you know you're sort of part of you won't work right well that's a poor way to put it but you will have some issue i think Mm -hmm. um some things will be very difficult for you and this is the case for mark spitz i think um you know sure he can survive but what kind of a survival is it like how what is he like on, on some level what we're being asked is you know what would you rather you know go to buffalo and like believe in buffalo and like go there and fight for it and maybe lose mm-hmm. or don't and give up mm-hmm. or just maybe you know you're stuck in the middle somewhere and you kind of you kind of like part of you you can't not give up but you also can't believe in buffalo and you don't know what to do but you just kind of keep going and right i that's what i think is so beautiful about it cuz it's like that's a the being stuck in the middle thing is like so so real for so many people. I don't know. No, I like that. And I think, you know, that's kind of that's sort of what I wanted to, you know, in asking this bad question, like get out of you a little bit, like talk about this stuff, because it's there is this very real thing. You know, I think about it in relation to um Max Gladstone's novel that we read too, where that mm. is so much about how like you are the relationships that you form and like they form you and are just yeah. are you, you know, beyond yeah. just like forming, you know, you're an atomic unit and other atomic units can like add stuff to you. But like, no, that action of adding and subtracting stuff like is the, the, the action is you right. as right, much right. as any like thing yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, I guess like another way to put it is this is to say, I think zone one is a book that recognizes that like one of the problems that it's very individualized main character has 100%. is his individual visualization and lack of connection with others you know a hundred percent and indeed like at the end you know i mean he refers to caitlin his unit caitlin and gary as his family Mm. because they are right well he goes back for them even though gary has gotten bitten and like is dead he still goes back for gary and caitlin which is a really like yeah I know it's a really powerful thing in some ways that it's like, even though I know this is doomed, I'm going back for them in some way. Yeah. I mean, arguably he's going back for his pack also, but right. That's kind of dark, right. but no, but like, I think, you know, you know, but it's interesting he, that the lie he tells himself about it isn't about the pack. Like right. And it's not just that. It's also, too. it's also Mim. Mim is like that too for him. Mm-hmm. Despite his failures to have like real connections with like his girlfriend's pre Mim, he doesn't, that doesn't happen to him with Mim. Right. Like he doesn't, experience that moment with her right um and he looks for her like even when he perhaps shouldn't mm-hmm. you know one thing right he stays a week waiting for her yeah which is like he knows after day one that it's too long to stay and right he does it anyway one thing that you know as we were talking about um depression and relationships um but also just sort of like being able to see yourself versus not being able to see yourself and mm-hmm. being able to you know kind of like imagine other ways of being there's this thing that you know, the very first sentence of the novel is I always wanted to live in New York or he always wanted to live in New York city. And he, that, that, that sentence, that theme of like him wanting to live in New York city comes up over and over and over again, even though it's in this very weird thing where like, okay, well you're in this geographical location that used to be New York city, but like in what way is it actually still New York city? And you know, it comes up 
Well, it comes up again where, you know, he's talking about how like someone says like, oh yeah, I never really liked the big city. And his response is like, yeah, but you, 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 one, you've only say that if you've never been to New York and right. two, like the thing you used to not like about it is no longer there. It's no longer full of people. So why are you even thinking about it that way? But like, ironically, like him getting angry at this other guy could also get pointed around at him so easily and be like, yeah, that's right. The thing you loved about it is no longer there. So why do you keep thinking like, oh, I always wanted to live in New York city when like the thing that makes New York, New York is the people and the relationships, right? Like that is, that is New York, not just a set of buildings. And I love that kind of like irony in there of him getting mad at this other guy for, but like you know, correctly diagnosing what he found wrong about this other guy's way of thinking. That is also like, though, could get turned around on him so easily. It's also the way he thinks about Connecticut. He never mentions <laughs> Connecticut without like some epithet. And it's so funny. Oh, I love that. As someone who's lived in both New York and Connecticut and also does that when I talk about Connecticut, yeah, I like, loved that. It's such a silly holdover from like the pre-apocalypse to like, like hate Connecticut. <laughs> like what are you even hating? Like, But also Connecticut is hateful. <laughs> <laughs> yes the like and he has he has he's so creative with like the epithets like because he like goes through all the obvious ones and yeah. it's like by the end it's like each one it's a each time it's a different one <laughs> so good but that's also like that's also the thing where it's like what are you even hating at this point right you know it's not connecticut anymore in some sense right like, connecticut was destroyed along with everything else but the whole american phoenix you could also say that of that if, like there's this isn't america anymore you know like the whole well, project yeah. <laughs> is that same problem yes it does <laughs> it's all pr man it's all pr <laughs> but i wanted to ask you more about new york i, I don't okay. think like we're not quite done with new york because like, yeah, another thing that this novel very very much is is it's a novel about new york despite yeah not always taking place in new york and despite taking place in like this impossibly altered version of mm -hmm. new york it's a novel about it's it's a novel that like loves new york mm -hmm. and like that love is so obvious and like comes through in so many different ways you know you you know it, it's I, I i learned at some point while i was reading this book i like you know saw that colson whitehead had written a, a book of essays about how much he loves new york and i was just like of course he has because like i didn't even <laughs> need somebody to tell me that because it's obvious in this book that he loves New York right. like, profoundly. And I think it's really interesting to like to think about what that even means. I think a lot of people, you know, care about where they're from, but there's like a particular thing about New York where since New York is larger than life and it has all these sort of metaphorical associations and it has all this meaning that is almost like divorced from the reality of living there. There's a way that people love New York, I think, that's like different from and, and true perhaps of other cities too, maybe a London or a Paris or or something also. But there's a way that people love it or like fall in love with it that's kind of particular, I think. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if maybe as somebody who, you know, well, I don't know. Do you love New York and have you fallen in love with it? Is that a thing you recognize? Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Love okay. That's what I thought. This is the right question to be asking me for sure. Um I so I want to um you know uh, uh bring some real life shit in which is that I real. you know you and I just got brunch with my father who for the last week has been staying with me in New York City so real. Um, my father who has lived in rural Alaska for the last to to 40 years. No, no, he doesn't even know what a podcast is. Okay. Well, Which I, I tell him I do a radio show for the internet because it's easier than trying to describe what a podcast well, is. Maybe I'll get him to listen to it. <laughs> Go try, try your best. 
Um, I had to show him what Google Maps was, even though he's had an iPhone for the last eight years. So that gives you an idea of his level of, you know, but, but so, you know, he, this, the reason I bring this up is because he, the thing of someone saying like, oh, I've never, I hate the big city or I've never liked the big city, even though they've never been to the big city. Like uh-huh. that is my dad. <laughs> like You just met yeah. him. You can get but a he, sense he of But he had this. a great time. Oh, obviously he did because he, he'd only said that before he'd ever been to the ah, big city. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, but I think of that and I think of, you know, that, that as, as, I think the way in which people who are not from New York hate New York is the same way in which people who are not from New York love New York. Like it's actually the same thing in a lot of ways, which is like there is this idea Mm. of New York that comes to us through Seinfeld, that comes to us through (laughs) Friends, that comes to us through... 1004 that comes to us through, you know, yeah, Don DeLillo or, you know, John so Updike or, you know, and, and I do think, you know, I think of friends I've had who, who people who we actually know in common, who, um, you know, we're like, I've lived in New York for nearly a decade now. And, you know, in that time they have moved to New York and some of them, I just remember, I remember one guy in particular, not going to use names here, but who like if really a year or two before he moved to New York, he would post all this stuff on Facebook about like how much he loved New York and how excited he was to eventually be moving there. And these like memes about moving to New York and how great New York is. And like, just the, you know, there was this kind of like almost you know, of two minds, like schizophrenic, which I know is probably not the right thing to say is kind of, you know, but, but still like this thing of like, on the one hand being like, oh yeah, I recognize those. And also, oh yeah, that has nothing in common with my lived experience of New York too. Right. right? Like there's this thing of, yeah, of like the way in which I love New York now is there was this really great medium essay written a couple of years ago by like a guy who would eventually like who had lived in New York, actually lived in my neighborhood for a very long time in Queens um, and eventually moved out to LA. And then a few years after that, like wrote this essay called New York city does not love you. Lol. <laughs> and like, that is to me the, like the thing about like, when you love New York, if you're doing it and you know, like you have to also recognize that like New York does not love you back. <laughs> It's not a human relationship that will ever be reciprocal. No, no. What you're in love with isn't real in some sense. Right. Or what you're in love with is like, you know, to some degree pain. Ouch. <laughs> and so I, I don't know to, to what degree I'm making any sense to someone who does not live in and love New York, but there is this. Very, I can I can be a stand in for them. Right. Like there's something about um this not there's something about the idea of like being like okay so they're in new york and they're like walking from building to building and like any door they open they don't know if there's a scale on the other side and they don't know if that Mm -hmm. scale is like a regular scale or a straggler Mm -hmm. right and any person they encounter they don't know if they're alive a scale or a straggler Mm -hmm. uh you know they have to like sleep in these really uncomfortable ways it's raining all the time and the rain contains like ash or maybe it doesn't. Right. And like, and like, there's this whole, like at points where like, you know, the dead are just piling up against the wall and it's just like, they're coming and coming and you know, at some point it's going to crack. And like all of that is, um, 
the stuff I love about New York. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing that comes through. It's like, right. yeah. <laughs> like being on the subway, you know, again, to bring it, like I was taking my dad around and like going on the subway. Like I love New York City's subway system. I like 100% love the fact that we have the subway that we do. It's open 24 fucking hours a day, seven days a week, 325 days a year. There are like no other subway systems in America that's true of. There's only a couple other in the entire world that that is true of. You know, it's like one of the largest subway systems in the world. It's by far the largest in America. It, you know, moves millions of people a day. It is so convenient. Like it's, you know, we would be walking through the city and he'd be like, oh, do you know, we would have walked several miles and he'd ask like, oh, do we need to walk back to the subway? And the answer is always no, because there's another their subway station within a few blocks no matter where the fuck you are in manhattan and most of brooklyn and queens like it's the best and i truly like i mean everything i'm saying here but at one point he asked me he was like oh cool we're going on the subway are you excited and like my reaction was like oh no because no one is ever happy to be on the subway ah uh, yes <laughs> right like this weird thing of like Oh, for all I just uh, said yeah. is true. Also, you're never happy to be on the subway. <laughs> I will Being say. Being on the subway is not a pleasant experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this, the, the, there's a good analogy here, actually, I think, between commuting like anywhere. I, mm -hmm. I live in a place that is a place, but it's not New York. And I have had yeah, commutes. Yeah, we are somewhere. Yeah. I have had commutes ever. And my experience has always been that if a trip is your commute, it sucks. Um, if a trip is not your commute, there's a chance it won't suck. There's a chance you could really, really enjoy it. Um, but there are different levels of sucking too. I mean, you know, you definitely want it to suck as little as possible. And oh, the subway, 100%. by being very convenient and efficient, uh, sucks a lot less than it could. No, totally. Um, you know, I think it is this idea of like the physical feeling of being on the subway. It's even at its best when it's not as crowded as it can get, it's still overly bright, overly loud. I mean, just being on the subway causes hearing loss. Like the New York City <laughs> subway system causes <laughs> hearing loss. Everyone in New York City who rides the subway has some amount of hearing loss because it is too loud. Just being on the train cars, much less on the like platforms. Which, by the way, is like a solved problem technologically, <laughs> but whatever. There's a ton of solved problems <laughs> at the New York subway city. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Let's not even go there because that's another hour-long rant. Um, trains are great. <laughs> yeah. Also, they're the worst. <laughs> yeah, I think so. There's this. There's another interesting thing that I'll say about New York, which is like I. Oh, I, oh, I was just yeah. gonna. Sorry to oh, yeah, to, sorry. to end that. Like, but so I've never I've never gotten on the subway and been happy to like be on the subway because it's always a physically uncomfortable experience, even at best, because it's too bright and too loud, if nothing else, and it's usually also too crowded. Like you're just touching other people who are strangers all the time. That said. Like I've been happy to get on the subway because it means home. I've been happy to get on the subway because I know I'm finally going home. Or like when a subway car comes after a long wait and you don't know if one's even going to show up at the station or not. And it does. Huh. Or even better when you walk down, and you're like, God, it's like, you know, it's like midnight. It's going to take like 20 minutes for my fucking train to come. And you walk down the station and like a, you feel the wind and you're like, oh, the train's here. Like I didn't even <laughs> have to wait. And the train is like, that's a feeling right there. Yeah. Um, but like on the other hand, at one point, my dad and I, we took a, a, the New York City commuter ferry, the East River Ferry, um, back up to Queens from from South Street Seaport because we could. And like 
at times being on the ferry is very unpleasant because it's cold and you're outside and there's a lot of people too, blah, blah, blah. But also like it is possible to be on the ferry and it's sunny and beautiful and you get a like view of the entirety of like, it's possible for that to be physically pleasant in a way that it's not for the subway to be physically pleasant. So, yeah. So I think of that as a microcosm for like loving New York city. Like you can't love New York city really without also being kind of realistic about the ways in which, in which either you are one of the 1% or it is like physically uncomfortable all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I think it's the really interesting thing to me about loving places the way people love New York um, is that is the way that it's it it works like love of a person. It, you know, if you meet someone and their partner and the, those two people are in love, perhaps, um, and maybe you even like, like both of them mm-hmm. you'll still never you'll never see the two of them the way they see each other um mm-hmm. and you know there's a way that you just kind of it, it changes how you how you think about something when when you when you, like everything about it is something you like even the things that annoy you <laughs> like i am somebody who i've always liked new york a lot since uh-huh. i was little and i could live there but it like it you know i i think i have a i i I'm I'm glad that there's the two of us are, are having this conversation because like I think right. that the, you know I neither love it nor hate it. I think right. it's cool. You know, in a kind of like I also think many other places are cool kind of way. Um and so it's it's like very interesting to kind of compare these things because if I hated it, I think I might love it and if I loved it, I think I might hate it, but in fact yeah. I have neither of those those feelings towards it. Right. Um and, and in the same way, like I never watched Seinfeld. I never watched Sex in the City. I never watched uh, Friends. Mm-hmm. I never like I just I don't know. I just it's not that I wouldn't, but I just never did. And it's not not a priority. I just don't care. Well, the funny enough. thing I feel like about New Yorkers of different types, because I, you know, I love a certain thing about New York and other people who love oh, New yeah, York love different yeah, things. Yeah. And that, like, you know, what I think one way you can kind of understand what New York people who live there love is like, which of those oh, yeah, they yeah. like, right? right? Like, cause like I'm a Seinfeld partisan. I know other people who live in New York city who are like friends partisans and yeah, think it right. does a better right. job. Right. Like even though neither was filmed in New York and neither is really, you know, about New York as it exists. They're both about like LA's conception of New York in some way. That's such a weird thing. I, I don't think of that really either. Uh, like, Ah, that's a weird thing. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> taking pictures of taking pictures. <laughs> no, because like, because like, I don't think so many people who live in LA, oh, this is like turning into a conversation about New York versus LA, which is like never an interesting conversation, but I love so, both cities. So, you know, yes, I also love both cities. I, I, so many people who, um, like are Hollywood people in LA are like not from LA. And so, yeah their views of other places are actually the views of people like maybe from those places. Right. Well, I mean, Seinfeld is that right? Like Jerry Seinfeld yeah, and, um, exactly. What's from, what's his fuck from like long Island. I right. Think. They both, yeah. and they both lived in New York for a very long time and then right. like went out to LA to make a show about New York right. because they were living in New York right. and got right. the show. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's a, you know, I mean, that's this kind of interesting, yeah, I think just like both fact of the entertainment industry as well as, 
you know, it gets to yeah. the, your point that like the thing when you love New York, like you don't love a real thing. Like it's not real. You love your mm -hmm. idea, this abstract entity of yeah. like a bunch of different relationships you have with, you know, different people and different physical locations and different things. And like your one tiny perspective, you know, right. there's this, so the subway and the subway, they have these, um, poems that like the subway commissions. And instead of having advertisements, sometimes you'll just have a poem instead. And there's, um, one by, uh, 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 what was it? Billy Collins. I think Bill Collins, some, something like that. He's yeah, Billy Collins. yeah. Um, and the first line is something along the lines of here, there are 8 million centers of the universe. Mm hmm which yep. is just perfect. Like yep. that is New York city is 8 million centers of the universe. Yeah. And also how New York is it to have like a really navel gazy conversation about like what you are. <laughs> so New York. So New York. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, also like, you know, how, how Ivy league is that. So. Oh God, cut it. <laughs> cut it. Double it. Uh, all right, dude. Cool. How do you so feel? Should, I feel good. I, I wanted to, um, I had one or two questions I wanted to ask you or do like it. get your, your, um, Maybe rapid fire response too. Does that work? Yeah. Questions for the question God. Uh, Mark Spitz, the name, the like name. the nickname. Did that mean anything to you at first? No, it did not. Okay, I did it didn't not know to who me either. Was. Yeah. I did not know who that was. Yeah. I was actually, yeah, I meant to ask you that too. I yeah. Same, yeah. same. I actually didn't even look up if that's, for it's all really I know, it's funny. made up. I do not yeah, yeah. know if that's a real it, person. It's funny too, because it's like this book was written before Phelps, Matt Phelps. Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. Right, yeah. right. No, that's what I was thinking. Like yeah. it, Michael Phelps would have been such a perfect name for it. But like, <laughs> no, but Mark Spitz is better because I actually assumed that Mark's like before it was explained, I thought that Mark Spitz was like somehow Mark relating to like Marksman or like it was like more right, direct same, meaning same or something. Yeah. But uh, nope. Nope. Okay. So um, rapid fire number two, mm -hmm. the fall of the wall. Fall of the wall. The fall of the wall. Fall of the wall. It was good. I saw it coming. I mean, I, I predicted right. at some point early in the book that like this was going to be a book where everything ends badly. Right. And sort of halfway through <laughs> yeah. the book, they, he starts just like saying that like stuff's going to get really bad by well, the just end. The way that the book is structured as like days. Yes. Kind of like, gives you a it's sense. Like, mm, yep. <laughs> what happens sort on of Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but also like, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the last chapter, them talking about like mm -hmm. what the wall represents as this, you know, these ah, yes, barriers. Yes, and yes, I really yes. liked that. You know, I don't have much to add, but that whole conversation <sighs> I liked me, a that's lot. That's all depression stuff because putting so much of yourself into like one metaphor seems like a losing proposition basically. <laughs> and like, if you're like, I think to me, like a huge feature of depressive thinking is the way that your thoughts sort of spiral around specific things and you can't escape thinking of those things. And the certain metaphors just seem like impossibly accurate, but like you hate them. Mm -hmm. And that's to me what the wall represented. It represented the, this sort of depression metaphor, the way in which like a depressed person's thinking will fixate on like one thing and like it's like it seems like it's the dichotomy that explains everything you know outside of wall versus inside of wall you know like people who like have walls people who don't have walls it seems like the one you know concept that like unlocks reality and like is in, in inherently is like a feature of every other thing but it's dumb to think of the world that way it doesn't <laughs> actually help or, or work like on some level like so yeah I, I that's how i think about the wall okay good um 
One thing I I'll, I want to like give my mm-hmm. own two cents here, but um, one thing I really liked about the book was how fast things change. Like this view of like everything is normal and then everything is not normal. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like oh, especially. Yeah. I think this is something that like you know, zombie, Walking Dead, scale, whatever fiction can do a really good job of because like even after the apocalypse, the threat is ever present. Right, like that's one good thing about this type of literature and this type of po- of apocalypse is that in other apocalypses, like the other humans become the threat if you want to have a constant threat. Whereas here, mm-hmm. you can have like the apocalypse can always happen again. The like mm-hmm. you know pandemic can always get re-triggered. The like dead are always outside and like walking through. You know they're always shambling. They're always, they might be mm-hmm. slow, but they're still moving in your direction. They can always hear you if you do the wrong thing. Right. And that flip that happens so frequently where like normal people talking in normal ways and having a normal conversation and in the middle of the sentence, all of a sudden they're like running for their lives is this thing that, um, I don't know, to me just had this kind of like, uh, it felt familiar in some way. It felt mm-hmm. somehow like very true and familiar to those kinds of situations. Yeah, right. It's also very much a choice to make it so that like, this is a story where none of the refuges work. Mm-hmm. That's a choice though. <laughs> That's like yeah. a very particular narrative choice. Absolutely. Yeah. That is not, you know, right. That is a, that is a narrative choice. I like that. Um, sponsors. I love it. Oh my god, I love the sponsors. That's such a stupid fucking idea. Like <laughs> like you can't loot anymore because we've decided that we need more rules and like the way our rules are going to work is like it's going to be like whoever's like the last remaining person who's a shareholder of like, you know, Hasbro gets to like just like they we like we have to find them and bully them into signing on the dotted line before you're allowed to take all Hasbro things now. It's okay. So amazing. Like, but like stupid, but also like right now there are major fires in California. Like they are turning oh, off oh. electricity for millions of people. Yeah. And like, you can't get the things you need because you're not allowed to loot. Right. I mean like this happens yeah, yeah. in every like actual disaster. Oh, no, no, no. In it's not stupid in the sense that that would never happen. Of course it would fucking happen. It's right. stupid. It happens. Sense, it's like, happening yeah, today. Yeah. Yeah. People are it, not getting it, their meds. It's just like humans being humans. It's so right. hilarious. Like, I mean, it's so, it's so on the, it's nose. like cry sob hilarious. It's on a, the lo- a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and then the final thing I wanted to talk about a little bit and, oh, you know, I think I we can know. end here maybe stragglers like, Oh yes. Oh, I didn't think you were. Okay. Yeah. This is a really good one. Um, stragglers are cool. It also gets into like all of the sort of new pieces of culture that emerge around killing zombies Mm -hmm. or killing skills. Like, um, you know, the various games that the psychopaths play, (laughs) the various like, right. The various sort of like tropes or memes that emerge around like, right. The killing stragglers or the, yeah guess guess the scales purpose or right, guess the right. stragglers like, purpose like name the bloodstain right whatever the one um <laughs> that i laughed i'm not gonna lie <laughs> yeah 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 i mean i think it's it sort of says a lot about how memes are created it's a comment about you know the yeah. the way that memes work and stuff um it's also and just culture generally yeah works. yeah yeah it's also really cool to think of, like stragglers is a great um it's a great metaphor for a lot of the things that the novel's interested in because you know, there's a constant back and forth about, you know, the ways in which stragglers are just like regular people, the ways in which, you know, it's exact, the, the ways in which like the, the kind of the people who are doing well in the post-apocalypse are all the people who like couldn't have ever been the ones who do well in the pre-apocalypse. And mm-hmm. so there's this like divide between a kind of quote unquote normal person slash straggler and a kind of like 
quote unquote abnormal person slash like survivor. Right. Um, but also the whole idea of a Feeny is maybe someone who is like trying to get it back to pre yeah, to pre post apocalypse yeah. so they can do well again. Right. And then the, the, the Lieutenant's question about like the proportion of Strylers versus <sighs> yeah. Versus regular scales is, is like a very good one. Right. And the final answer is he's looking at Corsica and like, this is what a world of stragglers looks like as the world that it used to be. Yeah. I think, um, it's a like the the one thing that I think I could imagine. So, in some sense, this is a very. Uh, this sounds pejorative. I don't mean it to be. I want it to just be purely descriptive, but like it's a sort of a small book, because it's about like one person mm-hmm, on some level. Mm-hmm. On some level, this book is about one person and their psychology, and you could imagine a, a book that does a lot of the same things, but that's about more people. Yeah. And in in a book about more people, I think you would need to have more different kinds of reactions to these metaphors. Mm-hmm. But in this book, because it's only about one person, you you ultimately kind of you get one person's reaction to the metaphor. Right. And this is one of the senses in which like Underground Railroad to me is a better book. Um, it still gives you a lot of psychology and it's not like a super long book. There's a similar length, but you get like you get other reactions to the same metaphors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I maybe wanted. I maybe wanted a little of that here. I maybe wanted just a little broadening of the horizons of the of Marx, or not maybe not Marx Bits horizons, but like of the book's horizons. Yeah. So because I think there's like so many other things you could do with like he does a lot with stragglers, but you could do even more, you know? All right. What did you think? I mean, I like putting aside what stragglers mean for a second, that idea is such a great mm-hmm. one. Like I just yeah. love the visual image of it and the kind of um the way that it can at times just break up the narrative. I mean, right, like you you hear a lot of talk of stragglers before you realize what they actually are. Yeah. Too. I, that's that's a narrative thing that he does a lot, where you hear a lot about something before you really figure out fully what it is. And I I like the way in which he like introduces ideas before having to info dump you on them. Word. Um. I mean, again, this goes back to just like how well written this book is. Um. But like the other thing that like. I don't know this sort of like stragglers as this idea of this sort of like unthinking way we can kind of go through the world and the unthinking way we can, you know, have reactions to things mm. or just like, you know, be where we are just cause that's kind of, you know, it's like there's this, there's this implicit thing about the game of like guess the skills or the stragglers purpose, which is just mm. that like, there is no purpose they are P zombies, right? Like they don't feel or think anymore. No P zombies. <laughs> and so like there's that something <laughs> But you know you know what I mean, right? Like there, there's something that like that I'm whole joking, game yeah. is just based on a kind of a wrongness, but also like yeah. there's something that feels very salient about that in like our day-to-day yeah. life. And so I don't a wrong, know. A wrongness sort of like David Chalner's being wrong about P zombies being a good anyway. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> save it for the blind sight post read <laughs> um a book i like yeah <laughs> a book I, I like a lot you know <laughs> um but no but i think that i don't know i just loved it as like a visual metaphor yeah you know not even a literary metaphor but just this kind of like visual motif of of like breaking up what the scales and and you know again taking <clears throat> thinking about this in the context of like larger context of zombie literature and like 
you know, usually you think of like fast zombies, slow zombies or whatever. And in here it's, it's, you know, it's less about that and this division of like, you know, the shambling dead who are trying to eat you versus the ones who maybe just like went back to sit at the place that like reminded them of whatever it is <laughs> that it was important to them. So good. Oh, uh, and so I, back I don't to know, the, I love that. The, their favorite Chinese food place <laughs> right. where they... Back. thought about proposing <laughs> <laughs> back to the you know like uh, uh fortune teller also just like that's a still a true thing about new york is there are fortune tellers all over and like how and why i do not know yeah well i mean there are here too there's one right over uh, oh yeah brunch. right but they'll be in like the most expensive parts of manhattan these like little tiny buildings that haven't changed in 30 years that weirdly are like, that is also true here i always i often do wonder about those businesses right like um they have them downtown and also this is an expensive area over there. Right, right. Yeah, no, I don't know, it's, I, don't know it's, man. I, I wish I knew. Um because yeah. I always I've even like, gone in a that's few some observational like, uh right, you know, right. It's like, man, how about those fortune tellers people? <laughs> what the fuck is up with them? <laughs> Where are their clients? It's like airline food. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. So I think that I'm done. You're done. <laughs> do you have any do you have any speed rounds? Oh man. Um what is the scariest thing about zombies? to you or scales or the dead or right pandemic dead or you know just that someday we'll all die that's a that's a real fact yeah that's the final refuge man that's the wall <laughs> yeah that's the, the wall is life thought the wall is life yeah i don't i don't know i you know it's weird i don't i don't find zombies per se necessarily all that scary the thing i find scary the most scary is this idea of like getting to a house, getting to a apartment building, getting to a lawyer's office, like the first few pages of the book and like opening the door and having to be on full alert 100% of the time because you don't know if there's going to be a scale or not. I thought that the whole book was going to be that actually Mark Spitz got bit that that first scene and then like was like gradually succumbing. That's what I thought it was (laughs) going to be. Right, right. Oh yeah, that no, that definitely could have been. Yeah. No, Gary, Gary gets it in the end. Oh, Gary. Poor Gary. <laughs> Fucking Gare with Gare. the scale. Gary <laughs> That's what you what get an idiot. you fuck with the scale. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> what did you expect to happen? <laughs> you just don't do that. You know? <sighs> okay. Well. All right. It's been real. Yeah. Watch uh, your back. Thanks to everyone listening so far. Uh, WJ Music. Noah Bradley. NoahBradley.com. Artwork. Thanks, guys. Uh, SpectologyPod at gmail.com at spectology pod on twitter spectology.com rate review subscribe tell your friends ding 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 hide your kids hide your wife i don't know <laughs> watch your back you know what are the like there's like the zombie land rules things do cardio <sighs> i don't, I don't even talk about zombie land all right whatever sorry <laughs> it's so fine sorry. it's fine talk about overrated comedy movies right didn't we have a great time watching that movie together the first time yeah like 15 years ago (laughs) i mean why why do we need to like mess with that memory that was fun right but you know because they came out with like zombieland 2 like 10 days ago or whatever it is they've messed with the memory culture i'm not not paying attention all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna quit here bye peace out